Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 18th, 2014, and if all goes as planned, this episode will be the last one of 2014, the 453rd episode in EconTalk's history. All of the previous episodes are available in our archive and can be downloaded at iTunes as well. I'll soon be announcing the opportunity to vote for your favorite episodes of 2014. You'll be able to do that online. So listen in and follow me on Twitter at EconTalker or watch our Facebook page. My guest today is James Tooley, professor of education at Newcastle University. He is the author of The Beautiful Tree, A Personal Journey into How the World's Poor are Educating Themselves. James, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you for having me. So this is an extraordinary book. I uh, I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, it's a great personal story of how you came to discover uh, private schooling in very poor countries, and it has a lot of, of economics uh, sprinkled throughout, uh, along with the uh, excitement of the detective mission, the, the discovery process you were on. So let's start with uh, telling us how you discovered private schools for the poor. How, how did this come to pass? Because a lot of people believed, and I'm sure still believe, that they don't exist they're impossible. So how did you how did you stumble on them? Yes. So I, I, I was in Hyderabad in south central India. I was there on, a, on doing consultancy work for the International Finance Corporation, the private arm of the World Bank. I was looking at elite private education, private education for the middle classes and the rich, because I was you know, I'd become an expert in private education. That was my area of research. I was dissatisfied with this because for whatever reason, I, I was drawn to, to serving the poor. You know, this is what I felt my life should be about. And here I was looking at private education for the rich. So on a day off from my consultancy, I wandered down into the slums of the old city. Um, and uh, sure enough, I had a hunch about what I might find. And I found a private school, a school charging in those days the equivalent of one U.S. dollar per month serving a couple of hundred children, and I met these people, and then I wandered down another alleyway and found another school, and soon I was in contact with a federation of 500 of these low-cost private schools in these poor, largely Muslim areas of the old city of Hyderabad. It was a, an amazing finding for me, because suddenly if you, uh, the, the two parts of my life came together. I could work concerning the poor, low-income families, and I could be exploring private education too. But more than that, this seemed very exciting. So Poor people were using private schools. Why? Why has no one told me about this? Um, you know, what's going on here? And, and so began and, a really exciting time in my life. And they were paying uh, when there was a, was there a public school that was uh, free of charge that they could go to if they wanted? Yes. Now in, in, in India, not only are there public schools, well, call them government schools there, um, not only are there public schools that are free of charge, um, they typically provide free lunch, free uniforms, 
Um, so there's not even many, or you know, not not excessive overhead charges as well. But these poor parents, and those schools are there in the poor areas. They're they're everywhere. Um, these these public schools. So why were poor parents making this decision? Well, I spoke to some poor parents on that very first visit, and I've been reinforced many times since. A typical phrase would be, in the public schools, our children are abandoned. The teachers don't turn up, or if they do turn up, they don't teach, or they don't teach, they don't particularly teach very enthusiastically um, and very with much commitment. The children are typically left to their own devices. On that very first visit, I went to see one of these public schools, and there were 130 kids seated on the floor of a classroom, mosquitoes everywhere, bright-eyed, keen young children wanting to learn, but their teachers weren't there. They were all pushed together in this one classroom. And that really made me realize there's something exciting going on here. Um, there's something worth exploring further, something that the world needs to know about, the private sector alternative. And you found this over and over and over again in in poor countries. And I'd like you to just give us a quick overview of some of the places that you discovered this phenomenon happening and uh, despite the fact that in every case it seems knowledgeable experts told you they didn't exist because yes. poor people couldn't afford them and uh, they would never uh, no one would ever choose to do that and they literally they don't exist so uh, you're wasting your time and yet you found them where did you find them yeah it was extraordinary, as you say. <laughs> and this is still the case today when I go to new countries. People say these private schools don't exist. In our country, private schools are for the rich or the middle classes. So I went on a journey um, funded by the John Templeton Foundation, who had trust in what I was saying, that they might exist. And we found them in Ghana, in Kenya, Nigeria, uh, Zimbabwe, Somalia, Somaliland at least, um, then across to uh, several parts of India, not just Muslim Hyderabad, and then even in rural China, in the remote mountains where perhaps the most <laughs> extraordinary low-cost private schools are up in these remote mountains because the public schools are too far away. Not that they're, in that case, the public schools are not so bad. They're just too far away. So that was my first sort of foray, and that's all described in the beautiful tree. And since then, I've been looking in perhaps even more difficult places. Sierra Leone, Liberia, very much in the news now, of course, with the Ebola virus, very much in my on my radio because of huge numbers of low cost private schools in the slums and poor areas, South Sudan to even northern Nigeria. Now, so, of course, of course, you can't generalize perfectly, but I, I, it seemed to me there was a fairly uh, similar pattern in this in the personalities and and vision of the people who are running these schools. Who are tip, you know, they're entrepreneurs. They're they're making money, which is um, hard to imagine, but they're making money. Mm. At, there's certain patterns of both the entrepreneur running the school and the teachers. Uh, what are some things they have in common across all these very disparate countries? Yeah, yeah. And, and and you're right to remark on that because it, it was quite remarkable that wherever you went into poor countries, whether they were in South Asia or across in sub-Saharan Africa, there were tremendous similarities between the entrepreneurs and the teachers. So the entrepreneurs... Uh, to, Three, three sorts, really. One would be a mother who maybe starts, uh, you know, what to do with her own young children. So she brings together a street full of young children for a kindergarten. And then the parents say, 
well, why can't you stay on, you know, it's not so different in grade one, why can't they stay with you? And so a school starts from the bottom up. Another one might be a young man who starts uh, what's typically called a cramming class, a, a sort of tutorial class to help you with your exams when you're older. And the children say, well, I learn more with you than I do at school. Why don't I come to you all the time? And so a school starts from class 10 and goes downwards. But now increasingly, people are seeing the success of these private schools in their communities. So someone, perhaps a slightly more educated person within a community, but not even necessarily that, but someone who sees the potential for school, maybe can raise an initial little bit of capital or um, you know, has a building, a bit of land, an entrepreneur just seeing the success of other schools might start a school now. So these schools are there. They make some money, as you say, but not not a lot. I mean, they're very they're very small surpluses, but nonetheless, they do make a profit typically. And uh, the teachers, this is very interesting. The teachers are from the communities themselves. Very important. It's study after study by the World Bank and other international agencies points to one of the problems in the public schools, the government schools that teachers have social distance, they call it, from their children. They might despise the children from the poor areas. They think they're dirty, smelly, they swear a lot, you know. They might despise them, look down upon them. Um, But the teachers from the local communities in the private schools, they recognize the children as themselves, and they work hard to ensure that those children learn. One of the most poignant, uh, there are a lot of, it's a very moving book, Um, one of the most poignant, Parts of it to me is when um, is, is some of the condescension from either the aid community or the officials in the country who um, either don't believe that the schools exist or if they do exist, they think they're horrible. And one of the reasons they're horrible is because the typical school, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to describe it, the typical school, say, for example, doesn't have a toilet. And uh, and the, the kids say, well, our houses don't have toilets. That's no big deal. <laughs> and And to them – from the world they're in, this is normal. Uh, for the uh, bureaucrat who's never stepped into their neighborhood, and you describe, uh, unfortunately, how challenging it is physically to step into those neighborhoods because there's raw sewage in the street. There's It's a very depressing, sad uh, way of life for us who have so much more. But for the kids who are there, that's what they're used to, and they don't expect their school to be luxurious. The fact that it has problems physically is not a big issue, and yet – over and over again in your book, you talk about how people dismiss these private schools because physically they're not very uh, attractive uh, and they ignore the intellectual, uh, psychological things, the learning that's going on. It's incredibly uh, sad. Mm. Uh, I mean, and you've described, you know, you've described the slums and, and these, these poor communities. I mean, some of the villages are, can, can be very attractive in some ways, but the slums are, are vibrant places. So, that, you know, you don't get, you don't get depressed necessarily going into them, but you, they are very poor. And as you say, raw sewage is the least of your worries as you step into the, into these areas. And then you see where people live and the, the houses are pretty inadequate, the homes, the shacks and so on. And the schools are typically slightly better than where the homes are, you know. Uh, um, and and of course, it's desirable if a school is, is is even better. But you know what 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 I've been taught to realise by these ex- experiences in in these poor areas is that it's it's better. You know, you you've got to look at what's possible within these areas, and you can be incrementally better than any alternative, and that's. You know that's that's good. That's that's something to be valued. Whereas 
outsiders say, oh, these poor, these poor private schools, the buildings aren't good enough, you know, they're not beautiful. We've got to say they're not good enough and we'll invest in expensive public schools, but we can only afford one or two. We can only afford a few. They've got to be outside the slums and they've got to have properly trained and paid teachers. And soon you've got a model where no one really cares for the children in these schools, uh, in, in the public schools. So it, it's, it's an it's a organic, it's, it's a sort of organic model in the, in the slums themselves. And it works. This is, this is the absolute key. You'll probably come on to that. So let, let me leave, leave that to you. But just, just this, this despising issue, just this despising issue. I, one of the stories that I, happened to me recently, um, I'll never forget. I was in a fishing village in, in a poor part of um, Gujarat on the Pakistan-Indian border, but on the Indian side. Um, and one of the fathers, I was talking to the, the villagers, the fishermen and the fishmongers about the inadequate public school in their, in their midst. You know, they thought it was terrible. Their children weren't, weren't learning anything. The teachers were exhibiting all that social distance coming from out, outside and not caring for the children. And one of the fathers was so angry about his daughter not learning anything that he went to complain to the government school. And the teachers saw him coming, heard him. You can see him through their eyes. They saw a dirty, smelly, illiterate fisherman. They called the police and they had him arrested and, and he had to, you know, suffer through the Indian legal system because he'd gone to say, it's not good enough. You're not turning up or you're turning up late. Um, for my daughter's class, she's not learning anything. Now that story is just horrific about what goes on in the public schools, but nonetheless, it's not a bad news story because entrepreneurs in those communities themselves are setting up these private schools and they are doing better. So one of the reactions that you get from um, development, quote, experts or from government officials is that, well, these schools can't be helping the poor because they're for profit. And mm -hmm. uh, what's your response to that? They're not, well, for the, they're not for the poor. I mean, the, the public schools are for the yeah. poor because they're not making a profit. Yeah. But the yeah. private schools so, are for profit, so they're not for the poor. Yeah, and and incidentally, so some of the private schools might be non non profit, so they might be run by churches and, and, and mosques and, and, and NGOs. So, but but there's certainly many of them are are for profit. You know, they're run by proprietors, and that that's that brings them an income. Um, I I'd say two things to those people. First of all, we've done a lot of calculations now to show the affordability of these low-cost private schools. We've got a very, a very neat way of doing it. And we, what we do is we take a family on the poverty line or even below the poverty line and show that many of these low-cost private schools are affordable to them, even if they're sending all their children to them, uh, as long as they're not spending more than 10% of their family income. So that, you know, they, they are affordable. That's, that's, that's the first thing. Secondly, many of these private schools also offer scholarships, you know, uh, discounts for large families, for very poor um, people. So they have flexibility themselves. They have flexibility about payment terms. They have flexibility about, you know, whether you've got to wear a uniform or not um, if, if you're too poor. But, and then, then the third thing is, uh, well, if they make a profit, well, what does that mean? <laughs> well, what that means in practice is that the, the entrepreneur – keeps 
keenly aware of what the teachers are doing. Are they turning up? Well, if they're not, then obviously his profits are going to suffer. So he makes sure his teachers are there. Are the children learning? Are the children doing their homework? Are the children doing the assessments? If they're not, the parents will realize that and see how better schools where these things are happening. They will take their children elsewhere. So all these things... Profit, what does it mean? Well, it's not a dirty word. It means accountability. It means checking up on teachers, making sure they turn up. It means accountability to parents, making sure that the, the children are learning. So I, I say to the people who say profit's a bad thing, I say forget it. It's not a dirty word. It means high standards are, are kept. High standards are ensured because it keeps people on their toes. You... um. Your training is not in economics, is that correct? Uh, my, my, I was a mathematician and philosopher as an undergraduate, and then I, I've dabbled in economics and uh, political economy and, and so on. But yeah, I, I wouldn't call myself an economist, no, not, not. Because I, uh, what, what yeah. I love about the book, and um, it just screams out, it's not, you don't write about this explicitly, but it just, it screams from the pages, which is that the parents of these kids... Uh, know a lot more economics than the bureaucrats and the economists who are supposedly trying to help them because they constantly say, well, of course, I'll go to the private school because they they make sure the the teachers show up because if they don't, I'm not going to send my kid there. It's kind of straightforward, and yet it doesn't seem to carry much weight with um, the people who, quote, supposedly know more. One of the the saddest, uh, most powerful chapters of the book is called Poor Ignoramuses, where you yes. talk about the attitudes of uh, some of the bureaucrats and, and experts uh, toward these parents who are desperately eager, as all parents are, to see their kids thrive and uh, are finding a way to make that happen, and yet the outside world can't seem to imagine it. Yes. I mean, the, 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 the Poor Ignoramuses chapter, as you say, so I... I, I I focus in on some officials, uh, particularly in, in Lagos, Nigeria, who, who who had never been to these slums before. This is the this is the first thing. You know, they 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 were very blase about it. They pretended they knew them, but they'd never been there. So, you know, even to the schools on the outskirts, so we went to the public schools on the outskirts, and uh, we asked about the children from the slums, and it was just so patronizing, the the, the response from, from these, these officials, you know, you're really lacking in any concern that these children might might have a, you know, desire to learn, their parents might might be desiring to learn, and uh, totally dismissive, and, and yet inside the slums, the, there are the private schools, there's, there's eagerness to learn, there's, there's you know, tremendous things going on, so... It, you know, it is, it, as you say, there, there are, oh, but you're talking about parents. Yes, parents, um, understanding economics. I think I even mentioned that in one place, you know, with the parents and entrepreneurs having a, a more understanding of economics than, than others. I mean, yeah, they, I, I think I could safely say that I learned a lot of my understanding about the virtues of markets, you know, competition, uh, incentives. A lot, I learned a lot of this stuff. Not through reading Hayek or Milton Friedman, but from talking to parents and entrepreneurs about what they were doing, and and they, you know, they they were saying stuff that spelt out all these virtues of competition, how the market worked, how the market um, dealt with problems of sloppy teachers, the occasional bad apple entrepreneur, all this stuff I learned, 
by talking to the people in these poor communities themselves. So it's been an extraordinary learning experience. So um, the extraordinary, uh, yeah. The the thing that that jumps out from your description and the way the parents talk are what I often think of as the essence of of the profit and loss motive system, which is feedback loops. You, you've got these built in uh, regulators that that are not coming from the top down, but from the bottom up, that if people do a bad job, they stop sending their kids uh, to that school. And um, the key to that, of course, is that this is, I think, as, as you point out over and over again, it's hard to believe, but there's a, there's a lot of choice for these for these parents. There's a lot of schools. That's number one. Number two, mm. bad teachers get fired in these schools, these private schools. And, yeah. and in the public schools, they never get fired. They don't show up. They show up drunk. They show up drunk and they don't teach. They show up drunk. They read the newspaper. They show up drunk and they fall asleep. Doesn't matter. They they never. It, it seemed like they don't. It's literally. Is it literally impossible to fire them? And yet, in the private schools, um, they're just they're fired. <laughs> yeah. No. That, that that's that's a really really key difference. And you know, it's not saying that entrepreneurs also won't understand the particular situation of a you know uh, of a teacher and won't sort of understand. Yes. Okay. Well, they, you were late or you didn't turn up yesterday, but that was a particular reason. We'll forgive you. And you know, so it's not an instant hard. You know, it's not so hard that it's painful. In that way, but no, if a teacher has no reason or is consistently late or um, doesn't turn up in a private school, they're out. And it's absolutely crystal clear. Everyone understands that. I had an interview, uh, again, this was in Ghana in a fishing village. Uh, um, we, we followed a, 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 a father, his name was Joseph, out in the fishing boats into the amazing um, waters, the Atlantic there, getting up at three in the morning, going out in the boats. But uh, he... He said it absolutely, spelled it out absolutely clearly. He understood with his own fishing boat, he had a fishing boat of his own, that if a, one of his colleagues didn't turn up, yeah, he would be fired. <laughs> you know, absolutely. And he saw the same thing in the private schools. Why did he send his daughter to the private school? Because if the teacher didn't turn up, they would be fired. Whereas in the public schools, well, the public schools, the teachers are so heavily unionized, they don't... It, you know, it is almost impossible to fire a, a teacher there. You, at best, you might be able to move a teacher somewhere else to make it him or her someone else's problem. I've spoken to a lot of, you know, public school head teachers, principals, and you know, some people read my book and think I'm condemning public school teachers. Education. No, no, I'm not condemning them individually. I'm condemning the system. You met some really good souls in these public schools who say. You know, only three of my teachers come to school regularly out of nine or ten. I can't do anything about it. I didn't have any role in selecting these teachers. I can't do anything about getting rid of them. Um, and I just have to accept what I'm given. Of course, he or she becomes disheartened and uh, sort of acquiesces in that problem. It's, yeah, a, it's a very interesting idea, isn't it? You know, why, it makes you, raises the question, why on earth is something as important as education? Why do we think it should have any, be anything to do with the unionized public sector at all? Mm. Um, well, we'll come back and talk about that in some of the general uh, yeah. lessons in a minute. But I, I, to give the critics their due, one of the things they point out, the critics of the private school uh, alternatives, one of the point, things they point out is that uh, the teachers in these schools are often uh, poorly educated themselves. They're not uh, certified in any way, whereas in the government schools, they're more likely to be certified. They're more likely to have college degrees and so on. 
And of course, you can argue about that all day long. You actually tried to find out uh, whether these kids were learning anything. And I, I want you to talk about, and just as a quick point, you had many, many helpers in this project. Obviously, you had many researchers who fanned out. You tried mm. to, the first thing you did that was an incredible achievement is you, you just got a census of how many kids are in these schools. So before we talk about the testing, why don't you talk a little bit about how you achieved the census of, of just counting and, and what you found out from those, those, uh, those census. Yeah. I mean, so, so that those initial visits I told you about going to Hyderabad, I, it seemed, you know, there were, there were so many children in these private schools, but I wanted to get, you know, but I wanted to get some firm numbers. So, so typically I would, link with a local university or NGO, non-government organization, and uh, select a team leader. We would then select 30 to 50 researchers. We would train them. We would train them in gaining access to schools, in going to hunting schools, in never giving up in areas. And then we would send them into the, the, all the poor areas that were in our, in our census area, and they would just go and find the schools and we would check up on them. We would follow, um, we, we would do random checks and have supervisors doing this. And, and it was a, it was a thoroughly rewarding experience because the, the extraordinary thing we found out, um, well, first of all, we found out how easy it is for some people, some of the researchers just to be, have that mentality. These schools can't really exist. So I'm not going to look too hard, you know. Um, anyway, well, as soon as we got over that problem and sent, people back and think, no, we know there's a school in that community. You go and find it. Um, they'd go and, 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 and um, the, 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 the headline figure was it's always the majority of school children. When we were doing these school surveys, the majority of school children were in these low cost private schools. And that majority could be anything from 65% to 75%. So very significant numbers. This was in the urban areas. In the rural areas we looked at, it was typically around 30%. So, you know, this is not some minority pursuit. It's, it's, um, not, it's not a novelty item. It's not like, wow, it's not we found a, a school. Exactly. There's a this school how, where kids are paying. Yeah. this is it, People dismissed it in the first place, you know, saying, oh, you might have found one or two little private schools in the slums of Hyderabad, but it's only in Hyderabad it's only one or two schools. No, no, absolutely not. It's a majority of children are doing this. And it's the majority doing it you know, we do further studies, and so Liberia. Liberia has been in the news very much in America recently because of the tragedy of Ebola. We went to those poorest slums. So West Point is one you've probably seen on the, the TV, um, where the government shut, you know, uh, quarantined the whole slum because of Ebola. There are in those slums, seventy-one percent of the children go to private schools, 71%. Only 8% of them are going to government schools and 21% are out of school. So it's an extraordinary success story in terms of numbers. You know, this is, and clearly poor parents are voting with their feet and expressing that preference for private education. But you asked, how well are they doing? So we've tested around 35,000 children now in, in these different communities around the world. We've tested them in mathematics English and usually one other subject. And, and then we've controlled, you know, scientifically, we've controlled for all the relevant background variables, family background, socioeconomic, you know, wealth, education of the mother, you know, proxy measures for wealth, like do they own a TV or a radio or 
so on and so forth, you know, all these things. And uh, we've, we've been able to show quite categorically that the children in the private schools outperform those in the government schools, you know, after controlling for all those effects. So it's not just that they're brighter, slightly wealthier children in the private schools. No, we control for that. And these children, if you, you know, they do better in the government schools. So that's the answer to the critics. You, you started the same by saying the critics say that in the private schools, the teachers are not trained. The teachers are poorly qualified. Whereas in the government schools, they're well trained. They're well qualified. <laughs> and the, the Sorry. answer to that is, well, they don't, they don't manage the achievement. They don't manage to do, to, to push that qualification, that certification into real achievement for the children. The private school teachers, however poorly trained they are, they do. And that's why these private schools are so successful. So uh, two, two responses to that. One is, uh, you, you know, it, it's nice to control for whatever you were able to get information about but and there are a lot of things that are hard to control for that are unobservable sure. such as drive passion commitment uh stamina love uh those don't answer easily onto a form and so there's probably differences between families that choose to send their kids to private schools and moreover given the horrific numbers of of attendance and and look downtime where nothing's happening in the public schools based on your stories of course it's you may have your own biases. You probably do. We all do. And it's not surprising to me that it, it appears that the private schools do better. I, the question would be, I think, from the critics would be, okay, so they do better. And they do a lot better in, in your numbers. But again, I'm not, I'm not so surprised if your stories are accurate. I'm not surprised because there's so little true education, it sounds like, going on in the public schools. It's a very low bar to clear. So the question then would be, uh, since – so much of public policy, unfortunately, is about the perfect. Um, so what should we be striving for? So the, the, the critics of your worldview or my worldview say things like, well, perhaps in the slums of, of, of India, the private schools are doing better than the public schools, but they're not doing very well. And we should still be mm. trying. We just have to make the public schools better. We have to give them more money. They need better teachers. Whatever. We, I, we hear this story over and over again in the United States. It's not just a problem in poor countries. It's just – Okay, so we're not doing very well, but we just need to do better. And, of course, my view, and it sounds like probably your view is, well, better is unlikely in the current world of human nature where incentives aren't in place. And i rather count on these feedback loops of profit, and a private system, I think, will do better no matter what. But the next question would be, uh, okay, so they do better, but how well do they do? I mean, when you say they do better, what kind of achievement is possible – for these kids in these ramshackle schools with uh, no uh, no books, perhaps limited uh, physical facilities, so they're better than the public schools. But how good are they? Can they read and write? Can they do math? What kind of test did you administer? That, okay, so it showed that the private's better than the public. How good is it? Yeah, I think I think it's a very, these are very good points, and this this really comes down to sort of the you know the, the nitty gritty of, of of it all. So that you know we we were testing in terms of reading and 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 writing and and, and basic numeracy and, and more advanced mathematics, and you know the children were doing better in the government schools, but you could still say they're not doing they're not doing good enough. And 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 I mean the, the, one answer to that is to say. 
I, I mean, first of all, compared to what? So compared to the government schools, this is the best option. And if you're a poor parent and you've got to look at your available options, you know, what are we striving for? Well, we can think about what we're striving for. But if you're a poor parent, you've got to think about what's available now. And these are definitely the best option. They're affordable and they, you know, make your child more literate and more numerate and therefore more likely to get a job or go on to further education. So, so those are, that, that, that's, that's it. But, but secondly, you can say, okay, from outside, we're striving for betterness. We want the children in Liberia or Ghana or India to be doing better than this. So you've got to look at where is it possible to improve what's going on. And most people say, well, we'll put all our efforts into improving the public system. You know, we'll throw money at it. We'll throw trainers and consultants and all the rest of it. And we'll try and improve that. But unfortunately, there's no incentive to improve in the public system. We've talked about the level of the school, the head teacher, the principal doesn't employ the teachers, doesn't have any say in who's there and can't control them. And all the way through, there's no incentives for improvements to, to come down to the school level and really, um, you know, hit, hit the, hit the, hit the children. Um, in the private sector, however, the incentives are all at least pointing in the right direction. There is competition. That's, as you said, quite extraordinary. You can go down, you know, one, one alleyway in a slum and see six or seven of these private schools. If one of them is doing better than others because it's found a good way of teaching reading, it's maybe using phonics or some, some good way of teaching reading, parents will soon cotton on to that. That school will get more kids that school will get, you know, slightly more profit. Um, and then the other schools will say, oh, well, you know, he's clearly doing good there in his school, improving the learning uh, in reading. Well, let's copy his method. Let's learn. Let's uh, go and see what he's doing, and we'll do it ourselves. So competition will bring about those improvements. And then from outside, you know, I, I'm, I'm acutely aware. You know, I, I don't like this idea of being an outsider going in and saying, we know what to do you know, follow us. But I'm very sensitive, and I've mentioned this in The Beautiful Tree, don't I? I'm very sensitive. People came to me and said, we know we can do better. Can you help us? So I've been doing a bit of this, trying to, in two ways, form one to form associations of these low-cost private schools and then bring in teacher training, bring in um, different, you know, ideas on improving literacy and numeracy, uh, and, and, and then seeing how we can help the schools together. And as I said, the in incentives are there to improve. I've also done this thing of creating a, or co-creating co a couple of chains of these private schools, where the idea there is uh, if we bring schools together, we can afford to invest in teacher training, curriculum development, assessment, in a way that an individual standalone school cannot. So the point is, you, you know, the critics, we can probably concede to the critics, these private schools are not good enough. They're better than the alternative, the government schools, they're not good enough. But where is the incentive going? What's, you know, what's, where are the incentives best? They are best in the private schools. And, uh, you know, that system can improve in a way the government school cannot improve and will not improve. Well, I want to, I want to challenge that. But before, before I do it, can, can you give us some flavor of the actual test that you administer, let's say on math? Is there any easy way for us to understand what level of competence we're talking about here that you were trying to assess? 
Um, we, we we adapted things like the the GMAT, the GMADE, um, that and and tests that were used. We, we've we've looked at some of the Tim's questions. These are international assessments. But I, I'm not going to be able to tell you. I, I, I'm not going to tell you off 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 the top of my head. You know how these children were doing compared to international norms and so on. I'm, I'm afraid I, I I haven't got that information. That'd be in an interesting head. thing to look at. But let me. Yeah. But 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 I. You know we we can we can say I, I think with some confidence that these children are are. are are not performing as well as as as, as uh, they would do, say, in Korea or or Finland. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So but, um, let me yeah. go back to your other point, though, which mm. is this issue of of where is the most potential for improvement. So I, my yeah. first impulse is to agree with you. So, but let me push back and and give you yes. a different scenario. So yes. when I look at the failures of the U.S. Um, public school system, one of the yes. things that jumps out at me, and I and um, the parallel in the United States, it's not as prominent as it used to be, but the parallel in the United States would be that in American cities for decades, there were Catholic schools that catered to poor children. And mm. uh, when the Catholics left the city, the schools stayed and they continued to educate typically non-Catholic children uh, mm. who, could pay, who could afford very little in, in tuition, but they, they paid. And one of the things I went and interviewed uh, – long time ago, the head of the Catholic school system, uh, this is not an econ talk interview, but a, a different kind, uh, the head of the Catholic school system in St. Louis. And one of the things she said was, uh, well, you know, most of our children are on scholarship, but everybody pays something because we mm-hmm. think it's really important that the parents have skin in the game. Yes. Not, that's not the expression she used, but that's uh, the way <laughs> I, that I like to think about it. And yeah. It seems to me that one of the problems with the American school system is we give it away. It's of course it's not mm-hmm. literally free. The parents pay uh, indirectly through other means, but the literal. Mm-hmm. But there's no out of pocket cost whether you send if you send your kid to school or not. And I think that's a terrible, terrible mistake. So one of the challenges of, of bringing more resources to bear to these private schools is you might ruin those feedback loops once. Your organization or a different NGO is open to the possibility that uh, you can help these schools. Suddenly, the focus turns away from the students, unfortunately, and towards you. And so, what are your yeah. thoughts on that? I, obviously, you give some great examples in the in the book of how very small amounts of money could have made big differences in terms of, and even a loan. Forget giving money away, but it seems to me yeah. that giving money away is part of the problem. And it's hard to not no. clear that that's going to make things better. No, I I I I, I do agree with you, um, and it's a it's a it's a real dilemma. But you can do things, I think, that can go with the grain of those incentives. But absolutely, first of all, you've got to totally accept that the reason why these schools are better. Why is that accountability there? It's a feedback loop, as you as you put it. Um, that's so important, and it's the fact that people have skin in the game. They are paying. That's why you know they 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 they, they keep an eye on on Sanders. And if you break that link, that's very dangerous. So I know sometimes people are, and there's some there's some projects I know in developing countries now where outside agencies, quite with lots of money, create voucher programs, but they don't even give the parents the vouchers. They they 
bringing the money straight, they count the children, give the money straight to the school, that link is broken. My guess is very quickly, well, it might take some time, but very quickly those schools will deteriorate because they've they've broken that link. But what I was talking about was slightly different. Um, It was saying we want to improve quality and let's see how we can help improve quality. Well, one way is to help the schools form associations which can, which the schools will pay to join, but we might be able to subsidize that and then help them develop different forms of curriculum assessment, teacher training and so on, which can improve quality. But everyone's still paying, but we're subsidizing it from outside a little bit. Now, there's dangers in that, but I, I, you know, they're not as, they're not as pronounced as just breaking the link altogether. So there's still dangers. Um, but I, I think there, you know, there's a there's a way of us bringing some of the expertise and understanding from outside and resources um, without breaking that link. Now, loans, giving loans, is a, is a, is the absolute easiest way of doing that, and that's what I've been encouraging. I encourage it in the in the beautiful tree. I started a few projects. I've encouraged since the beautiful tree. Lots of people have got into this space. Um, and so in India, there's the Indian School Finance Company being created. In, in Africa, you've got uh, Edify um, working, which is just doing that. It's saying, okay, schools, your greatest need is capital to improve, you know, to, to build toilets, to improve that roof, to invest in computers or, you know, better facilities to attract market share. You, you'll attract market share so you'll be able to pay back the loan so we'll just give you loans. And that actually is the purest way of, of helping these schools because um, it doesn't break any of those links that we've been talking about. Yeah, but but I absolutely agree with you. It's a real problem. And, you know, it's, it sounds too hard-headed sometimes to say, oh, well, we can't, you know, we can't go and interfere. But you can't go and interfere. The market is a very fragile flower. You can't interfere with that mechanism. Yeah, you know, my, um, my motto uh, as an economist is uh, the physician's motto, first, do no harm. And I think, you know, the biggest harm we've done to the poor people of the world is uh, in some of it, of course, well-intentioned, but we've said, well, what they really need is schooling. And since free, free is good because free means more people will do it. The key to the future of poverty, to ending poverty in the the poorest parts of the world is free education. And that sounds, it sounds great. Uh, But what I think of... You know, your book really has two lessons. One is the power of individuals uh, to take charge of their own lives. The other is the dangers of trying to help people in ways that aren't helpful, even if they're they're well intentioned. So, I want to come to some general. We'll come to some general policy issues in a minute. Before we do, I want to push mm. back on one one point you made and get your mm. reaction, which is you said, well, you know, if there's a school that's doing a better job teaching reading, uh, it'll it'll attract more parents, and then the the kids, uh, the other schools will try to find out why that's what's working and that'll help encourage them to improve. A lot of people would argue, well, and they argue this all the time in the United States about all kinds mm-hmm. of things. It's not just about the uh, parents of the poor. They say, well, parents can't assess this. This requires an expert because parents, um, I assume many of these parents are illiterate themselves. They did not go to school in, in, in the rural areas. They're peasant farmers, as you point out. In some of these other areas, they're fishermen. They're um, they're running very small businesses that don't require reading and writing and math. So they're not 
a lot of people say well, they can't judge whether these schools are any good and they don't have uh, – they're going to be taken advantage of. What is your response to that? Yes, well, they can judge. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's far too convenient for the experts like me to say only the experts can judge. So poor, illiterate parents who can't speak English can judge whether a school is teaching English um, by – listening to the children talk. Um, you can get a sense. Oh, these children clearly are, you know, on the street, these children are clearly conversing better in this language I don't understand. You can under, you can see that happening, whereas my kid who's going to the other school is not doing very well. This school is clearly better. Or you, you can see how they write. If you can't understand what they're writing, you can get a sense that they're doing it with confidence and with ease uh, and, and so on. So there's the simple proxy measures like that you can check. You, you can make sure if... The teacher is checking the exercises in the book. You can make sure the teacher is setting homework and the children have their homework followed up. You can make sure there's, there's frequent assessments and follow-up from those assessments. So all these things parents do, even if they're illiterate, even if they're, um, they, they can't even speak English and English is a language that's going on in the school, they can, they can see what's going on there. Um, so, you know, there, there are ways of doing it. And then, of course, you can see finally how well children do from that school, whether they, well, you can see immediately whether they're well behaved. There's more to schooling and education than just, just grades and exams. You want children to be well behaved, to be disciplined, to be respectful, to have character. You can, you can assess those things quite well. And you can assess all, assess all these things, assess all these things in the round. You can see, okay, this school, yes, the kids are coming out of here. They seem to be better at reading, they seem read, writing, they seem to be better at conversing in English. They're better behaved. They, they go on to better jobs or, um, you know, uh, uh, higher education more frequently. You, you, can, you can assess all these things informally. And, and the community can assess. You know, it's not just one person has to assess. The community builds up knowledge. You know, this is the, the beauty of, sure. of, and parents have told me this. You know, it's not just I have to know this. I've got my aunt, my sister, my, my brother, my uncle. They all send their children to different schools. We, there's a, there's a community knowledge here about which schools are better. But, you know, finally, you can say, if the critics are right, if the critics are right and parents can't assess, then that's another way in which outsiders or, or entrepreneurs ca can help. You can create rating systems for these schools. You can create ways of showing which schools are objectively better. And uh, that's something that entrepreneurs actually are doing now in these communities themselves, uh, in, in these countries themselves. In India, there are several rating systems, including for low-cost private schools, which can publicize how well schools are doing. So... The information problem, yeah, it's there, but there are informal ways around it, and, and there can be formal ways too. So it's not, it's not a big – and it's quite insulting, I think, to poor parents, and it overemphasizes that you know, primary elementary education is not rocket science. Um, well, I think the biggest – again, I think the bar is so low in the public schools that you know, they know when their kids don't uh, learn anything. They know, that, they know that when their kids tell them that they're sitting with 100 kids – on the floor, um, that that's probably not a good system uh, in the public school. And as you point out, the class sizes are dramatically smaller, and the teachers are more likely to be there. So those, those are pretty yeah. blunt measures of quality that 
you can get at. Yeah. They are, they are blunt measures, and what I'm saying is, you know, you can be even more sophisticated than that with these informal methods. You know, you can do all the things I've just described. So, you know, it, it, they are blunt, but what's the alternative? You know, <laughs> you've always got to look for what the real alternative is, right. and the alternative is what? It's a government system that is not receptive at all to improvement. Um, so but that's me- another way, you know, in talking about... Uh, um, ratings and sort of different formal methods of seeing which schools are better. That's another thing that the the, uh, the the federations can also do. So, you know, there are ways of intervening to help these schools improve without impacting the, the important link, the feedback loops between parents and schools. So in that answer, you, you mentioned something that I want to come to, which is, um, a, I think, a big challenge. And i uh, if you're not looking at it, I hope you or someone else will, which is mm. what's happening to these kids when they grow up? Um, this phenomenon of private schooling is is old enough now. I don't know how old you can you can talk about how when some of these schools started, some of them are, are old enough that they have graduates. Um, mm. And, of course, what we really care about isn't schooling per se. Oh, that's nice. I like mm. education. What we really care about is um, – what happens to these children with these skills that they acquire in these private schools relative to the public school alternative, are they able to use them at all? And of course, one of the challenges in these economies is that sometimes it doesn't matter whether you have education or not, there just aren't any, any interesting or uh, any kind of opportunities to apply yourself. So I'm wondering how much mobility there is. I don't, I don't care so much about money per se, although money is important, but how much mobility is there for these kids who are, say, the children of a, of a, of a subsistence farmer or a subsistence fisherman, uh, do they just stay in their village? Do they just stay in that slum and become an educated person doing these things? Or do they are they able to use those skills in ways that make their lives more meaningful? Yeah. So, so here, here we, we have done – we've started some longitudinal studies, but we haven't got any results yet. So this is what they call longitudinal studies, don't we, when we – we follow children over time, um, so we haven't we haven't got any data. So I'll just have to give you some you know impressions here. Um, but but just on the study side of it, it's quite hard tracking children, um, particularly when you're trying to compare children. Uh, you know the the actually again, it's not just us who finding this. The private schools are better at keeping track of where their children go um, after school. Um, the, the the government schools are, are hopeless. They don't see it as their responsibility, and that's. Uh, other research has shown that, so it's hard to do. But but um, you know the impression is well, and and there's a logical argument. If if you are better at mathematics and um, English and numeracy and literacy, and many jobs require these basics of uh, and other basic cognitive skills, then you're likely to be able to do better in um, in work and uh, in, in in further education. So there's a logical argument which says these schools are, are likely to do better. And then anecdotally, you know, we do see many, uh, I mean, there's a lot of mobility out of these slums and poor areas now. And because of that statistic, I've told you that you know, 70% of, of of school children, of children in these slums are going to, to private schools. A lot of that mobility is going to be because of those private schools. So, but this, these are all impressions. We don't know the answer to this. Um, so, and, and you're absolutely right. This is some research that has to be done. Um, it's important research. It takes time. 
Um, but it would be a, a very, very important piece of evidence to, sh- to, to show where these children are going on to. I mean, um, in a lot of these but you're right, right about the countries themselves, you know. So, so yeah. India is different. India is now a middle-income com- country overall. There's many poor, poor people within it. So there are opportunities there. There are industries. There are service industries in particular, the software, the call centers, and so on. That, and recruiting children, the retail industry, recruiting children from the sort of backgrounds we're talking about. If you go to somewhere like Sierra Leone or Liberia, well, it's much harder there to see you know, the sort of jobs that are, are desirable. And, uh, yeah, there, there, you know, it, it might be, you know, the skills, some of the skills that are typically there in schools might not be the most useful for that environment. Yeah. I mean, that's the hard and, part. And, uh, you know, so, so in some of the work that we're doing in, in Sierra Leone, for instance, where we're, we're, we're developing some sort of entrepreneurship, uh, program to help, children within the schools to do, you know, run, be able to run their small businesses better or create more opportunities that way. So, you know, and that sort of thing, uh, you know, other schools are, are, are interested in following. But yeah, it's, you know, nothing I've said, you know, I'm very upbeat in the beautiful tree and I'm very upbeat generally about what I know out here, but no one's saying it's perfect. Yeah. No one's saying it can't be dramatically improved um, and, and to be made much better, be made much more appropriate to the market conditions of work, um, and uh, uh, and so on. Um, but again, I come back to the thing: it can be improved because the market incentives are there to allow those improvements to filter through. If a school is clearly much more successful, successful at getting children into employment or even into self-employment than another one, that will filter through into the market signals and competition will ensure that school does better and therefore the other schools um, fight to catch up with it. Yeah, well, just, these, these, it, just, it isn't obvious that, that uh, these private schools should teach what the public schools are teaching. It isn't obvious that, well, that, that there, they should there, teach what we teach problem. our children. There, there is the big <laughs> problem. And that, that's, the, that's the sort of area that actually, yeah, I would still say it's the remaining problem. You're absolutely right. If, you know, if you're a private school entrepreneur setting out in this market without any other constraints, you might be very open to exploring, you know, what do the children really need? Where are they going? And so on. Unfortunately, in all the countries that I'm working in, there is a, a national curriculum and national end of school testing. Um, either, you know, um, in the nation or in India, certain statewide. Um, uh, testing. And that, unfortunately, is, well, the schools have to follow that. And they, the parents, you know, because it's the only show in town, the parents want you to get that national certificate. So they, schools are constrained by that. Now, because they're private schools, you find them being innovative around the edges. So for example, Typically, a national curriculum, you don't really have to teach in the early years of elementary school. Probably you can leave it until grades five or six. And the private schools concentrate heavily in the early years on mathematics and English, uh, or mathematics and language. Those are the two subjects that they concentrate heavily on, and they tend to avoid doing the six, seven, eight, nine subjects that the national curriculum says until later on. But nonetheless, in the end, they have to follow it. Oh, this is, this, this is um, an ambition of mine to try and break that stranglehold by uh, 
exploring with schools in different countries whether we can create our own um, curriculum and assessment system for the low-cost private schools, which will satisfy parents in the market and allow us to break away from the national curricula. Yeah, I mean, That's big, an ambition I've got remaining. Yeah, it's a big challenge, obviously, in development. Uh, is, is, the, is the country poor because the people have low skills? And the answer is, of course, that's part of the problem. But mm-hmm. is, it, is it obvious that giving different skills to those people, which is what we're talking about, is going to make them less poor if the fundamental governance and incentives of the overall economy are so messed up and so corrupt that uh, yeah. there's no room for those people to apply those skills. And there were quite, we don't really understand in economics those, those interactions. I wish we did. Um, let, me, let me ask a, mm. let me ask a, um, a slightly um, uncomfortable question, which is the following. So I love your book, but of course I would. I'm a free market guy, and I love competition, and I love feedback loops, and I romanticize them in, in my own peculiar way. And your book mm-hmm. is, a, is a delightful and inspiring example of how market forces exist even when you might not think that they would and that they do a pretty good job. Um, mm-hmm. And yet people push back against that interpretation, and they say, well, you're – and I'm sure some of my listeners are – they say, well, you're prejudiced. You, know, you have a bias in favor of free markets – this is really not the way to make the world a better place. The real way to make the world a better place is is to create the best kind of schools, not relying on uh, the uh, financial well-being of the parents. What what we have to do is is get massive amounts of money uh, devoted to making these public schools better. And we talked about this earlier, but this is the I'm revisiting it. So, and this mm. this theme runs through your book that that there are these. People who don't, not just don't agree with what you found, they hate it. That <laughs> they find yeah. it, they find it <laughs> offensive. They think you're dangerous. So my, you know, my preference for the United States, and it sounds like it's probably your preference for Nigeria and Liberia and elsewhere, is just get the government out of this business. I understand there's some theoretical arguments for public schooling, but in practice, it works very, very poorly. Except it works pretty well, by the way, in American rich neighborhoods. Um, rich neighborhoods mm. have good public schools in America, yeah. but who yeah. cares? They're going to get good schooling anyway. And it doesn't excite me at all. I mm. want good schooling for all people. And it seems to me the way to get there is to get government out of it. So people would say, well, you're biased. What I want to, mm. what I want to raise is the, and of course I am, uh, I want to, but that may not be, it still doesn't mean that it doesn't mean it's wrong. So, but mm. I want to raise the, an unattractive, uh, possibility for your critics, and you've, you encounter them much more than I do. You meet them at conferences. You meet them in government mm-hmm. offices of the Department of Education at such and such a state or country. Uh, is it possible that they're biased too in a, in a way that, of course, if, if our view is right, they have nothing to do. <laughs> they have to step back and let this flower blossom and they'll be unimportant. Uh, do you have any feeling, you want to say anything – about that possible uh, influence on their thinking. I'm not suggesting there's anything malevolent about it, but I think there is a natural bias that economists have toward, mm. some economists have toward top-down solutions because they get to run it and, and change it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I think that there's, there's, there's a lot in this. Um, as you say, economists, policymakers, those in the ministries of education around the world, the departments of education, um, yeah, if 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 
if what I'm saying, but more importantly, what the parents are saying, what poor parents are saying is right, then they are, they're out of a job. And, uh, and, and that's bound to affect the way you, the way you think about the world, isn't it? You know, that, but, but as you say, I, I don't think we have to ha- bring bad motives here. I think people just, you know, they're, they're used to thinking about these top-down initiatives to improve education. It's not working in these countries. You know, I mean, billions, trillions of dollars have been thrown at education, public education in the countries we're talking about. And, uh, in aid and, and, you know, if, if anything has got worse, you know, as one indicator is the, the growing size, the burgeoning size of the private education market. But the, you know, the, what I tell people, I, 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 I think I even invented this phrase, um, that what you're seeing is in these countries is what I call it privatization by the people for the people. Privatization, privatization of education, and you get his book addresses, isn't it? Privatization of education by the people for the people. It's a grassroots privatization. No top-down policymaker has said, okay, let's privatize education. The top-down policymakers are still doing their normal thing. The people themselves have said, we will privatize education ourselves. We're not happy with the government schools. We want to do it ourselves. And you've got this de facto or grassroots privatization. It's a, it's a very unusual feature. It doesn't really feature in any policy textbooks as far as I know. And yet it's happening all over. One good thing that's happening, I mean, because of it, you talked about corruption and, and so on. If you're, if you can lower, lessen, lessen the size of the government in any way, then you lower the opportunities for corruption. And so if you're privatizing education, then you're removing a large part of the budget, as it were, from edu- and power from government. You know, already you're doing something to, to lower the possibility of corruption. Yeah, I have to say, but, you're- you know, the, the point you're making about the emergent aspect of these schools, that they weren't some policy initiative or a no. special program. They just emerged in response no. to the yeah, bad public yeah. schools. It makes me feel better about American public schools because I don't think there are a lot of private schools for poor people in America. So maybe the government schools are not so bad. Uh, I don't think they're well, very good, but but at least yeah. they, they're not like, so there, horrible. There's something in that. There is something in that. Um, but the other thing is um, – you know, there's no welfare dependency in these poor areas. If you don't get off your butt and do something, then you you know you, you you're dead. You know, starve um, to death. Yeah, yeah. But let me Whereas, let me let me ask yeah. my let me ask my challenge a different way, and then we'll close Sorry. with this because we're out of time. So okay. um, you and I might agree that that government needs to get out of the way in Nigeria, Liberia, mm-hmm. uh, and I think mm-hmm. it would be a better world in the United States. The critic says mm-hmm. the following: You're the critic would say to you and me, you guys are too tough on the public schools. Public mm. schools are the ideal, and my evidence is Finland or wherever it is. You know, Finland was was the uh, poster child for public schools for a while. Now they've, they've fallen down a little bit recently in the international yeah. test. So there will be a different country that we have to emulate and imitate. Uh, Korea. Right, whatever. Korea, but yeah, but yeah. There, there's a point that in, in Finland or even in the United States, uh, public school teachers – they don't show up drunk. They don't read the newspaper. Uh, yeah. Most of them. Uh, it's pretty good. There is – I encourage everybody to watch the documentary Waiting for Superman, which has yes, uh, a, a little yeah. bit of the flavor of some of the stories, the horror stories you're telling. But but basically, public schooling in these, in these more developed countries work pretty well. And so th- what we need in Nigeria, what we need in India, 
What we need in China is we need better government and better governance. And when we get that in place, the public schools will work better. Sure, they're corrupt now. They've got a patronage problem. They can't be fired. But that eventually we'll get to we'll get to Finland. That's what we should be striving for, not to this competitive world of, of small schools mm. struggling and, and some making it and some rising above. Be much better just to have a bunch of really good public schools. How do you respond to that? Well, I, I'm about the situation in I have two I have two responses. So so one is Probably you could have said the same thing. Certainly in England, you could, probably could have said the same thing about the telephone system in, in England. You know, it was perfectly acceptable. And when the government ran the whole the whole show, um, it was okay. You had to wait a while to get a phone done, but generally you got connected. And it was, you know, you could say exactly the sort of description used used at the public schools. You could say, yeah, it was, it was fine. The telephone system, um, and yet it it was fine given what a nationalized system could achieve. But as soon as you privatize telephones, well, you bring in all these new possibilities of ways of doing things. And, you know, no one now would want to leave behind the, well, not many people would want to leave behind the wealth of opportunities for communication that you've got through a privatized system and, and go back to that rather dull nationalized telephone system. So I'm wondering whether... Yes, you might have a pretty good system in Finland, um, pretty boring, but solid, it's okay. But could a privatized system do something really remarkable with education and really get us thinking with, you know, much bigger parts of our brains, <laughs> being able to do so much better um, than the nationalized system? So that's that's the sort of, you know, that's the more philosophical, starry-eyed answer to your question. And then the very pragmatic answer to your question, given the countries we're in, um, I would love to see better public schools in India and Nigeria. I would love to see better government and governance in those countries. And if if one day people can sort that out, if Bono and Jeffrey Sachs and Bob Geldof can come in and make it better and make these public schools so much better that the private schools um, can't compete or to really pull up their socks to compete, I would be very, very happy if it's making education better, it's making opportunities for children better. Um, nothing I've said precludes the possibility of people doing that. But meanwhile, in the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, I'm going where parents are going. Parents are choosing these private schools. They think they're better. They're right. That's where I want to follow. My guest today has been James Tooley. His book is The Beautiful Tree. James, thanks for being part of EconTalk. It's been great having being on. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.